Thank you for those of you that are here. Those of you that are watching us online, we welcome you certainly uh, in that way as well. As was mentioned uh, previously, maybe you came in a little late, we're going to be celebrating communion today. Uh, and so if you're here in the room and you have not um, gotten one of these little uh, juices and, and uh, pieces of bread or whatever, make sure you grab one of those um, so that when it's time to do that, it won't be as distracting with people running around. If you are at home, um, find the closest thing you have to bread and juice. Uh, or a cup of wine this morning, I guess, uh, might be your plan, all right, and a cracker. Um, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time to be here. Thank you for the privilege of uh, entrusting us with this space, Lord, that we can, uh, if need be, come and meet inside, and Lord, we thank you for the parking lot outside on those occasions. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the internet and YouTube and all that stuff that allows um, folks from afar to be able to join us. Lord, we pray that you would bless us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's rich, it's alive, it's good. Lord, it's what we need. It fills us in a way in which we perhaps didn't even anticipate, Lord, as we sit under it. And you've been so good and so faithful uh, to preserve it for us. Lord, uh, bless us now. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. All right, well, we are in Acts chapter 9, so you can go ahead and start looking there in your Bibles. And I'll remind you, we are kind of in the middle of what is uh, perhaps the most well-known conversion story, maybe in the history of the world. This fellow Rabbi Saul that so many artists and, and things like that have set out to depict in one way or another, paintings and the like. Uh, and we've been looking at it, and we spent some time last week considering this Rabbi Saul, who we all know becomes, or we do now because we looked at it last week, will go on to become the Apostle Paul, maybe the most prolific missionary in the history of the church, this guy who was set on destroying the church and ending this Jesus thing, and instead he becomes its, maybe its chief proponent, uh, the conversion of Saul. Now, at the conclusion of our study last week, one of the things we pointed out, or maybe early on in our study, we pointed out that during this encounter Paul had with the Lord, just a quick reminder, he's on his way to the city of Damascus. He's going to put an end to Christianity. He's going to go into the synagogues. He's going to find those that are naming Jesus. He's going to drag them down to Jerusalem where he'll put them on trial. We already know he was involved with the execution of Stephen, so certainly that's a possibility that he's going to put these people to death. Uh, and it's as he's making his way into the city that the Lord encounters him. Bright, shining light, we're told. The Lord speaks to him, uh, reveals to him, I'm the one that you've been persecuting. And that Saul was blinded by that light, brought into the rest of the way into the city of Damascus, led by the hand. The one who was going to go into the city and wreak havoc is now kind of gently led into the city, gingerly walking because he's blinded as a result of the light that he encountered. And there he remained in the home of a fellow by the name of Judas, probably one of the synagogue leaders, the one that he was going to go to to root out the bad people in that synagogue. And he's there in that home where he remains three days and three nights, no food, doesn't drink anything, doesn't eat anything during that time, isn't able to see anything during that time. And he's alone there with his thoughts in many ways. Praying, We read in the scripture that he received at least one vision during that particular point in time. God was doing a work within him. He had initially converted Saul's heart, and now he's kind of refining Saul's thinking as well during that time, those three days there. Acts 9.9 9 said, and for three days he was without sight 
and he either ate nor drank. Who knows how we know, we read the story. Paul didn't know, Saul didn't know how long this was going to go on. But there he remained until, I love this fella, a sweet, kind, generous man filled with grace, filled with mercy, a man by the name of Ananias, in obedience, responds to the Lord's leading, goes to uh, Saul, says to him, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me that you might receive your sight. The Lord sent me that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. No doubt lays his hand on him in some way, prays for him, and Saul is restored. Acts 9.17, it says, So Ananias, he departed, he entered the house, and laying his hand on Saul, said, Brother Saul, Jesus who appeared to me has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul was healed. Now look at the next verse, verse 19. It's where we're going to pick up today. 19b, it says, And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. 19b says that. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now remember, these are the same disciples, Christians, that Saul had come to Damascus to destroy, and now Saul is sitting with them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's learning with them as somebody perhaps is teaching, singing songs of praise alongside of these folks. Saul had been changed, and these disciples welcomed him in. It's such a beautiful picture. First Ananias, then the entire group, welcoming in this man that had hurt or planned to hurt them in such a great way. Let's continue. Verse 19 says, Now for some days he was with the disciples, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, that is Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So again, notice, Paul is now, or Saul, is now numbered with the disciples. One more example of the radical transformation that took place in the life of this particular man, that he would be numbered with the very ones he set out to destroy. They became his friends. They became his support network. They became the ones that he would pour his life into and they would pour uh, their life into him. God's transforming him. Paul would later describe the work that God did in his life in this way. First Timothy, he said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, he says, I obtained mercy. He says, because I did it ignorantly, and I did it in unbelief. I didn't know. I wasn't who I am now. God has changed me. And he changed me from the inside out, both my heart and my mind. He has made new. Paul would go on to say, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show his long suffering. I hope you look at your transformation that God has done in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope you can say with Paul that me first Jesus has shown his long suffering. Because you know yourself, I know myself better than anybody else knows me. And I know how far I was from the Lord. You know how far you were from the Lord. And so for every one of us, man, he had to show a heap load 
of long-suffering too. Paul says that, that in me first, more than anyone else, he would have to show his long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul could go and talk with anyone, explain to them the gospel, that though they were a sinner, Christ would die on the cross for their sin. And that person might say to them, yeah, I don't think he could die for all of my sins. And Paul would say, let me be an example to you. Let me tell you what my past was like. Let me tell you the sins that Jesus Christ forgave in me. He can forgive that in you as well. Paul would look at this time in his life where Jesus would be radically transforming him, and he would come back to it again and again and again in the Scripture. He would tell people his story. This is how Jesus changed me, and he could offer hope he can change you as well. That's an incredibly encouraging message. If you're a Christian and a follower of Christ, you can bring that message to anybody you encounter, anybody you encounter. In any walk of life, you encounter that individual, and you can present to them a message of hope. Saul murdered people and dragged them out, and this is probably even worse, forced them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, and yet Jesus forgave him. How sweet is that? How good, nobody, not a little sweet? How good is that? How encouraging that is. Now Saul's response is, I got to tell others about this. What a sweet response. Saul had seen the light. We say that a lot. In his case, he literally had seen the light. James Montgomery Boyce, a guy who's quickly becoming one of my favorites. I, I believe he's been dead for quite a while now. Um, but he was a pastor and commentary writer down in Philly many years ago. And he said this, he said, if a baby is born and the baby doesn't cry, then something is wrong. I remember when our first son was born and there was no initial cry from our son uh, for like two seconds. And my wife uh, wasn't able to see my son from where he was in the room. And she, she called out, she said, is everything okay? He's not crying. And our doctor said, they don't always cry. Just like that. Uh, they don't always cry. And then a few minutes later, he started crying and, and all was well. It's certainly true that babies don't always cry, but if they never cry, then it might be a cause for concern. Even so, new, a newborn babe in the faith will soon begin to cry, so to speak, will soon begin to testify to what it is that God has done in their life. And they can't help to. Because the work in them is such that it has to come out. they got to share that. And you see a lot of young believers sharing their faith often. Sadly, as we get older in the faith, we, I guess we get used to the transformative work. It's not as profound as maybe it once was. And we don't share our faith as much as perhaps we once used to. But here is this new believer, and i just got to tell others. And so he's telling anyone that will listen his story. And in particular, Saul was very interested in sharing with his Jewish brethren. Those other Jews that are where, where they are now is exactly where Saul was a week earlier, two weeks earlier. And he's desperate to tell them, he's desperate to help them understand what it was he had come to learn about Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus of Nazareth was not some charlatan, that he was not some crazy person, he wasn't some criminal trying to deceive other people, but that he was the long-awaited Messiah that had come to Israel to fulfill what God had promised 
hundreds and thousands of years earlier. Paul wanted his brethren to know that, the Jewish brethren to know that. And so where's the best place to go? Go to the synagogue. And so we see in verse 20, immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He proclaimed that he is the son of God. Saul had a tremendous heart for his Jewish brethren. In Romans chapter 9, we read this. Saul would say, his name then being going by, going by the name Paul, he would say, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that is my Jewish brothers. Can you imagine having a heart that would allow you to say and mean, I'd be willing to go to hell, that all of my Jewish brethren, that all of you would be able to go to heaven. I don't have that heart. Saul had that heart for his people, the Jewish people. And so immediately he goes down to the synagogue and he begins to speak to the people there, the Jewish people there of Damascus. The text says in verse 20 that he he began to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Saul's not out front handing out tracts or something like that. And as the people are going in, he's like, hey, do you have a minute? Let me tell you. Saul would go into the synagogue. Now, the culture and the custom was different from what we're used to, particularly in this kind of a setting. If any of you come out of like a Quaker background, it's a little more similar to that, where you sort of go into a room, the seats are kind of situated around the side so everyone can see one another. And then people would have a word, not not in a weird sense, but they said, you know, I'd like to share something. Sure, speak, brother. And that person would get up and they would begin to share and they begin to talk and perhaps even do somewhat of a teaching. And so that was the setting in which Saul would go down to the synagogue, still looks like a traditional Jew and all that would come with it, and he coming from a distant area and someone might say, aren't you a rabbi or something? Did I see you when I was down in Jerusalem? Yes, I am. Well, would you like to share? Yeah, I'd love to. Of course, the message that he shared was not one they were anticipating. Paul would go on to teach the synagogue service that day and explain to the people how Jesus is the Son of God. That word proclaim means to herald. It means to preach. And Paul would preach that Jesus was the Son of God. This highly trained rabbi, this young member of the Sanhedrin, He took advantage of the opportunity that was before him, and he shared the gospel with others. He said, brothers, I came here for this purpose, to destroy the sect of this Jesus who you no doubt heard of. But let me tell you what happened to me on the road. Let me tell you what happened after that as I sat in silence. Let me tell you how this Jesus, who I thought I could destroy, who I thought was dead, is actually alive and has been ministering to me. And Paul began to explain his story, and Paul began to explain the power of God for salvation that is found in the good news of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of his conversion, Paul was not ashamed of that message. Romans chapter 1, you know the verse, many of you. Romans 1.16, I am not, this is what Saul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You mean to tell me you think some guy dying on a cross could do anything that would help me and my eternals? You even mean to tell me you believe in heaven and fairy tales like that? Paul would say, that's exactly what I believe. And I will proclaim it and you can mock it because I know it is the power of God unto salvation. 
And many, like Paul, when he sat and Stephen preached to him and proclaimed all those words, Paul wasn't interested in hearing that, and yet Paul heard that. He may have been mocking it, he may have been planning what he was going to do to Stephen, but he was hearing it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because why? There is power in that message unto salvation. And so Paul would preach it, and that's what he was doing in this particular instance here. He's preaching the gospel. He's becoming a witness of God's work in his life. And that's the will of God for every one of us that names the name of Jesus Christ, that we would be a witness of the work of God in our life. Now, lest you get nervous, God's not calling every one of us to preach. He's not calling every one of us to to go to the prison or whatever and stand out there on the softball field and proclaim the message in that particular way. That's not what he's calling every one of us to do. But he is calling every one of us to be a witness to what he has done in our lives. He's calling every one of us in our conversations with others to point people at some point in time to Jesus. That is the will of God for each of our lives, to testify what God has done, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, come to save us from our sins. Saul proclaimed, as it says in the verse, that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice that is. Not that Jesus was. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? We had thought that he was the one, they said, past tense, but obviously not anymore because he's dead. And Jesus revealed to them that he wasn't dead when he lifted up the bread. Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And Paul proclaimed that. And in that day, they knew what that meant. In our day, people get it all muddled. Oh, you see, when he was saying that, he meant a small s, and what it speaks to is this. In that day, they knew exactly what it meant to call someone the son of something else, the son of someone else, and in this case, the son of God. It meant that he was on par and equal with God, that he was God. On multiple occasions where Jesus used that phrase to reference himself, the response of the religious leaders was to cry out blasphemy, and to threaten to stone him or to kill him. It was even the charge that was brought against him in one instance. And so everyone in Jesus' day knew what it meant when he called himself the Son of God. And five years later, everyone in Paul's day knew what it was to call Jesus the Son of God. It was a claim to the deity of Christ. Verse 21 goes on, it says, Now all who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, of those who called upon this name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Paul's uh, life was being noticed by other people. People were beginning to wonder, what happened to Paul or Saul? He seems like a different guy. That's a guy who made havoc. And now here's what I'm hearing about this particular guy. Years later, Paul would say this, 2 Corinthians 5, He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You know the verse. The old has passed away and all things have become new. That's what the people were observing. That's what they were amazed by. The new things that were happening in the life of this guy Saul. This is a different man. This is a new creation. The one who had come to put an end to Jesus was now proclaiming Jesus. Now the text doesn't say it here. But what we go on to learn as we piece together pieces of Scripture is that Saul went and proclaimed Jesus 
at the various synagogues, and then he actually left Damascus before actually returning for verse 22. So between verse 21 and verse 22, Paul leaves the city of Damascus, and we learn elsewhere that he goes to the wilderness of Arabia. All right, it sounds weird. He went to the wilderness of Arabia, but that's what the scripture says. So the timeline is a little bit like this. Saul is going to leave Jerusalem somewhere about four or five years after Jesus uh, rose again and was ascended into heaven. Saul would leave Jerusalem and head to Damascus with the purpose of persecuting the church. Along that six, seven-day trip, he encounters Jesus, he's converted to the faith, and he becomes a follower of Christ. And as we were looking at today, he immediately goes to the synagogue and he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, all of those things happen uh, in or before verse 21. Then we discover from the book of Galatians, there's a gap in time. And then he comes back to Damascus in verse 22, where he begins to confound those that he is speaking to. I'll read you the verse from Galatians. It's chapter 1. Verse 15 and following, it says, Now, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now, here's the big thing. I guess we don't have this verse, but trust me. All right, verse 17, But I went away into Arabia before returning again to Damascus. Okay, so that's not written in the Acts account, but there's a, there's a gap there. Now, most people suspect it was about three years, and it has to do with how they read the text, that Paul was in the desert for three years. Another place Paul would talk about how he essentially met with the Lord, and the Lord taught him these things. It seems like that was where that happened that during this three years in the wilderness, this brilliant man, maybe one of the smartest men that have ever lived, is Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, that this brilliant man with a great deal of knowledge about a great deal of matters spent time and needed to have time that he might grow and that he might learn in his newfound faith. And so Arabia would be the place where Saul would be discipled by the Holy Spirit, the Lord, that he would be discipled for ministry, that he would be discipled for all it was that God was calling him to. I read a commentator who said, this is where Saul got his doctorate of the desert, his doctorate of ministry, where he was prepared and he could be sent forth. And it would be there, there in the wilderness, that he would be trained in the faith so that he could proclaim not just the details of his conversion, When he would get up, he wouldn't just tell his story of how he came to the faith, but he could open up the scriptures to others. He could go deeper in the faith, and he could explain things in the faith. He could answer questions beyond just saying, well, look, that's what happened to me. But he could dig into the word of God with other people and explain to them from the scriptures, which is why, if you go back to the Acts 9 passage, that's what he does in verse 22. So even a man like Paul needed time to prepare for the ministry role that God had foreordained for him. And part of the reasons I I jump on it, I know there's a lot of us here that are relatively new to the faith. We're anxious, we're excited, we want to get out, we want to start 
ministering to other people. Well, until that day comes, until that opportunity comes, prepare. Use your time wisely to prepare and let God prepare you that you might be an effective minister for him. This was a waiting period, a time for Saul slash Paul to grow, to learn, and to prepare. Now going back to verse 22, after those three years in the wilderness, verse 22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. This is the idea where Paul went beyond his personal story to the word of God, the truth of the word of God. And that's what he was able to confound the Jews with there in Damascus. Before he told his testimony, now he comes with the power and the authority of God's holy word. And that's what he could boldly proclaim to these individuals here. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you remember, hopefully, that the common Jewish understanding of the Messiah in that day was somebody who was going to rise up, get on a horse, ride into Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, establish rule. That's what the Jews were looking for. That's what Jesus' disciples initially were looking for. Now, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? You know, all those kinds of ideas. And the disciples themselves, Peter and James and John and those guys, they had to come to an understanding that Jesus had come to accomplish something different, particularly in his first coming. Well, these, these Jews here that are in Damascus, no doubt they thought just like Peter and John and James and all the other disciples. No doubt they thought just like Paul did, that the Messiah was going to be one that came in and overthrew the Romans. He was going to be the conquering king, which we do read about in the Old Testament. Ignoring those passages about the suffering servant, focusing their attention on those passages about the conquering king. We know, Paul had come to know, that that was not Jesus' mission in his first coming, to be a conquering king. But rather that his mission was to suffer and to give his life on behalf of many. Saul now understands, and almost certainly he dug into his Old Testament scriptures to gain that understanding as the Holy Spirit ministered to him just what exactly it meant to be God's Messiah, just why exactly Jesus came in the way that he did. And in verse 22, again, as you look at it, he confounds the Jews. He explains to them from the scripture. I can imagine it something like this, that there's a, a smug rabbi of sorts that comes up to Paul as he's teaching and talking and says something like this, look, we all know that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to overthrow the Romans and establish a glorious rule. You know, he kind of states it like everybody knows it. You're the only one in this room who doesn't know it. And Saul responds and says something like, do we all know that? Is that true? What about this scripture and this scripture and this scripture and this scripture? And from the scriptures, he confounded those he interacted with, those, it says in one of the texts, that he disputed with, that he debated with. And he reasoned with them from the scriptures and he explained to them what the word of God truly says about the first coming of the Messiah. Those scriptures had been opened to him and now he is opening them up to others. Verse 23, now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Luke says, when many days 
had passed. Again, if we go back uh, to the Galatians passage, verse 18 of Galatians chapter 1 says, after three years, uh, let me go back, verse 17 says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, there it's worded as Cephas, and I remained with him for 15 days. So when Paul came out of uh, Arabia, out of the desert, where he had been discipled by the Lord, and he went back to Damascus, according to Galatians 1.18, he remained there for three years. So for three years, he ministered to the Jewish people there in Damascus, and he explained to them who Jesus is and how he fulfilled the scriptures when he came uh, as God's anointed one. And he must have been successful in his efforts because the only solution for Paul uh, that the Jewish authorities thought would be the best thing to do is to kill him. Can you imagine? Well, you know, he does make a good point. I guess the only thing we should do is kill him, you know, or something to get him to stop talking, stop convincing people, stop leading people away from our synagogue or whatever it might be. It says the Jews plotted to kill him. You recall when the Lord revealed himself to Paul, Saul at that time. He went off into this house, and there he sat for three days. Then God spoke to this man, Ananias, and he says, I want you to go down into Damascus. I want you to go to the street called Straight. I want you to find a man staying in the house of Judas, who's sitting there, and I want you to explain to him that the Lord sent you to pray for him, that he might be healed and that he might receive the Holy Spirit. You recall Ananias said, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. And the way that he came into our town to, you know, root us out and all of that. And the Lord said, go, because he will accomplish great things for me. You remember all that? It also says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for, me, for my name as well. Paul's suffering, if you will, the persecution. And Paul, I don't want to ruin the story, but he will eventually have his head cut off for the gospel. Happy feeling gone. Somebody smiled and then uh, <laughs> have his head cut off. Oh, you know, and happy feeling is gone there. But he would suffer great things for the name of Jesus. It's just beginning here. This is the start of that much suffering. Fortunately for each of us, Saul didn't die. And that's what it's all about. It's about us. But fortunately for each of us, Saul didn't die in that moment. And the reason why I say that is because Saul, as you know, would go on to write about half of our New Testament. And at this time in the history of things, he hadn't done that. And how many of us been, have been blessed by the writings of Saul? The book of Romans, that guy, all right, and that kid over there, or young man, excuse me, over there as well. But you think about all the writings of Saul and how God has used them to minister to each of us. And so how fortunate we are. The plot, as it says in verse 24, became known to Saul. The Jews were watching day and night at the city gate, they're going to try and uh, sneak Saul out, you know, so we'll have guards there at the gate and all this kind of stuff. And so it says in verse 25, so Saul's disciples, they took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall and they lowered him down in a basket. Saul the persecutor became, the, became Saul the persecuted. And here in Damascus, he's beginning to experience what will go on to become his experience for the rest of his days. He will become a persecuted one, hunted down, thrown in jail on numerous occasions, and eventually killed for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
He's just beginning to experience what the rest of his life is going to be. It's a rather inglorious escape. Here's Saul. He came riding in with authority. He could, you know, dictate to this and that. And now he's being shoved in a basket, probably half his size, knees up by his ears, and sort of escaping out of the city. I imagine to some degree it had to be a humbling experience. What am I doing in a basket? I'm Rabbi Saul. And here I am in a basket sneaking out of this particular city. But these Jews there in Damascus, they couldn't debate Saul. And so they decide they're going to destroy Saul. They rejected the Messiah, and they're going to reject this man that keeps preaching about the Messiah. But notice this, verse 25, not all of them rejected. Because notice how verse 25 begins. It says, but his disciples. There were some in that city that were responding to the ministry of Saul. Not everybody in the city, but there were some in the city that were responding. And Saul ministered faithfully in the midst of it. And some said, we're not interested. As a matter of fact, we want to kill you. But others received it. And Paul's responsibility, Saul's responsibility is what? To faithfully do what God called him to do. And let God deal with the results. And some were listening. Now the drama continues. Verse 26, it says, Now when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he escaped out of the basket, ran to Jerusalem. And he wanted to join up with the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul then went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. Three years earlier, Saul left Jerusalem, determined, you know, kind of with his letters in hand, determined to go and deal with the Jews, the Christian Jews there in Damascus. Now he returns back to Jerusalem. And the first thing that he wants to do, as the text says, is he wants to gather with other Christians. He wants to fellowship with other Christians. Not because of some Bible verse that says how important it is to fellowship with other Christians, but he wants to fellowship with other Christians because in those gathering times, his soul is restored. He's strengthened, he's refreshed by fellowshipping with others. We talk about the importance here at Calvary. We talk about the importance of gathering with other believers, not just in a setting like this, but in a setting where you can get to know other people and you can interact with other people and pray for other people and they can pray for you. Not because it's things we check off, good churches do these particular things, but because we know how important it is. Saul realized how important it was to fellowship with other believers. He gets to Jerusalem and he seeks out these other believers. These other believers aren't quite so sure. They don't know this guy. They know him from before, but they don't know the new work that was done in this particular guy's life. They're not quite so, quite, quite so certain that it was a real work. It's one, it's, they think it's a big ruse. He's undercover. Three years undercover, trying to find out who is who so that he can really kill all of them or find them, you know, that nobody could be hidden from him, they're afraid to fellowship with him. And quite honestly, they had every reason to be afraid to fellowship with him. They saw what he did. 
You remember uh, earlier in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. They were all scattered, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women, committing them off to prison. So no wonder this group of disciples there in Jerusalem is afraid of him. And they don't want to give him a chance, and they're not quite sure, and they're just staying away from him. It's hard to blame them for doing that. Those things happened just three years earlier. Now, if you're younger, three years sounds like a long time. If you're like my age, you're like, that was just, that felt like last week, three years ago. And so three years ago is not a very long time for these things that were taking place. And it's going to take them time to believe. They're going to look at Saul's life. They're going to watch these particular things. And it's also going to take an opportunity for them to observe, you know what, this guy is changed. He is different. And the opportunity comes at the hand of another beloved brother. We already talked about Ananias. And the way in which God used that relatively anonymous disciple to make such a big impact on Saul's life. Well, we have another one of those instances. It tells us in verse 27, But Barnabas took him, he vouched for him, he brought him to the apostles, he declared to them how he had met the Lord and what God had done in his life and through his life. Barnabas takes a chance on Saul. To some level, when Barnabas went to Saul and he said, Hey man, what do you think about grabbing a cup of coffee? In a very public place where, you know, you know, what do you think? And he took a chance on him. And he began to engage with him and talk to him. And he finally came to the conclusion. He said, you know what? This thing is real that went on in this guy's life. It's real. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to take another chance. And I'm going to bring him to the apostles. Now, that would have been the perfect opportunity for undercover Paul to get access to the apostles and kill them all and end this religion thing. So he took a big chance. He believed Saul. And he brought him there to the apostles. And the rest is history, as they say. Now, a couple sermons ago, we saw the way in which Stephen's preaching impacted Saul's life. One guy who, it looks like, preached one sermon and change Saul's destiny, eternity, and ours as well, because of the work that Saul did. Last week, we looked at Ananias and how his act of grace and mercy melted the heart of Saul. And here now we observe an act of kindness and trust on the part of Barnabas to vouch for this man and the impact that that has had, even on you and I. My point is this. Look, you never know how the seemingly insignificant thing that you do, hey man, you want to grab a cup of coffee so we can get to know one another? You never, I don't know if that's what happened, but you get the idea. But you never know how that seemingly insignificant thing that you do, the impact that that could have, in this case, millions of people's lives. Barnabas extended a hand of grace. Verse 28, so he went in and out among, that is Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, if we go back to that Galatians 1 passage, we learn that while he is there in Jerusalem, that Saul and Peter begin to get together. And they, it looks like Saul went and lived with Peter, which tells me something like this, that Barnabas brought Saul in and introduced him to the apostles. And we know Peter, first one to speak, oftentimes, is sitting there and saying, where are you staying at? 
well, I haven't found a place yet. I don't know. And he says, come stay in my house. And he brings him to his house, and he stays there. It says, Cephas, by the way, is Peter. And he stays with him there for 15 days. And I imagine during that time, Peter began to tell Paul of his experiences with the Lord and what he had learned from the Lord and how the Lord was gracious to him and restored him and all of those sorts of things. And I imagine Saul began to share his story of God's kindness to him. And how do we summarize that? How do we describe that? God blessed both Peter and Paul with a fellowship with one another, a koinonia with one another. Their hearts began to be knit together as both two members of the body of Christ during that time there in Jerusalem. Verse 29 goes on, we read it, but I'll read it again, that Saul began to speak, he began to dispute, he began to debate with the Hellenist. And their response was to seek to kill him as well. You recall the Hellenists, we learned about them in Acts chapter 6. The Hellenists were Jewish people from a Greek or a Gentile background. So back in chapter 4, I said you had the Hebrew Jews but you also had the Greek Jews or the Gentile Jews. Well, the Hellenists were the Gentile Jews. And Saul, who comes from a Greek background in the city of Tarsus there, he went and he found them and he began to speak to them and explain to them the things that he had learned from the scriptures. And again, he must have been quite successful because their solution is the only thing we can do, we can't outwit this guy, we we have to kill this particular guy. And so they plot to kill him. And again, here is Saul, experienced the persecutions that the Lord said he would experience for his name. Saul, why not just stop? Why not just, why not, why keep pushing sort of the envelope here and pushing yourself to the point of death? And the reason why Saul didn't stop, even though the circumstances became violent against him, the reason why he doesn't stop is because Paul knows that his life is not his own. His chief goal in life was not his safety, was not his comfort, but it was proclaiming the gospel. And I'm sure he used wisdom. I think we see a couple of examples of it. And he used wisdom, and he didn't necessarily put himself into dangerous situations for no reason. But when God guided and God directed, he didn't consider his life more precious than his mission. And he proclaims the gospel, even in those instances. But here, as we see in verse 30, the brothers say, you got to get out of here. They're coming to get get you, and God has more for you. And so, as it says in verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea. Caesarea is a port city. It's right there on the Mediterranean. It's beautiful. And there they put him on a ship, and they send him to Tarsus. For his own protection, the Christians in Jerusalem, they send Paul. They rush him out of Jerusalem, get him to Caesarea, get him on a ship, and get him to Turkey. Today, Turkey. It's about 350 miles away. You'll be safe there, Saul. No one will chase you that far. The man who would turn the world upside down, it's later said uh, of the ministry of the early church, which he had so much to do, the man who would turn the world upside down would go to Tarsus. And he would experience there in Tarsus what is estimated to be 8 to 12 years. So let's just say 10 years there in Tarsus. That's where he learned the trade, tent making. And for 10 years, he would get up every morning, and he would go to work, and he would do this menial task, and he'd come down, and his hand, at the end of the day, his hands would hurt, and you know, he'd be tired from his day. And for 10 years, he lived a life of relative anonymity. This is the Apostle Paul. 
Not yet, though. And it's during that time that God would work in his life. God would teach him. God would deal with fleshly issues in him. Why am I wasting my time doing this? Nobody wants me to be. All those things, God would minister to him in the deep places. It's no doubt that he began to establish a good, solid time in the word of God for himself that God might minister to him. And it's in that process of studying God's word that God would begin to birth ideas and thoughts that he would later preach about, that he would later write about, that are benefiting you and I to this day. But for 10 years... He lived a life of relative anonymity, and God was using it. Verse 31 will go on to say, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, back in Israel, not in Tarsus where Saul is, but way back in Israel, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, it had peace, and it was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church was multiplied. That word there in the ESV where it says build up, it refers to growing in number and being strengthened. And so the church was being strengthened. The people were being established. They were able to stand. They were able to walk. They were able to run in the faith. And at the same time, it was growing. More and more people were coming to the faith. There was a period of peace, if you will, in Israel, and the church was growing there. God was at work, and he was at work in a great and powerful way. And the kingdom of God was on the move there, just as Jesus said that it would be. That's going on in Israel. Saul's up there in Tarsus. We're not going to hear anything about Saul again significantly until chapter 13. Um, it's 10 years again, 8 to 12 years, where God is working in him. But God is also working in other people's lives. When we come back together next week, we'll see how Luke returns again to the apostle Peter and the work that he was doing there in Israel. Amen? Good place to stop? All right, let's pray together. We're going to celebrate communion, so don't get up and go. Father, we thank you for the radical transformation, Lord, in Saul's life. And Lord, it, it honestly, it gives hope to every one of us sitting in this room, either for ourselves. Could God ever change me? Of course, he changed Saul. And for those we care about, could God ever change them? Of course, he changed the Apostle Paul. And so, Father, enlarge our hearts to believe in a greater way what it is that you can do, how you can change a person. Lord, give us the boldness of an Apostle Paul. Give us the heart attitude that he possessed, Lord, that truly articulates and says and believes that our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Lord, use us in the lives of other people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.